Welcome to Smart Creation, the podcast, an invitation to explore the potential of sustainable fashion. Every other Wednesday, Adrian, your host, talks to key players in the fashion industry to discover new products and understand the challenges behind offering more responsible fashion and learn the solution available today. This podcast is brought to you by Première Vision, the leading event organizer for fashion professionals. To find out more, go to www.premiervision.com. Discover and enjoy. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening Smart Creation, the podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Ben Hansen. He's the editor-in-chief at the Interline and an expert in smart fashion. Hello, Ben. How are you? Hey, Adrian. I'm good. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you very much. Um, so we're going to talk about smart fashion, um, but before talking about it, uh, could you please um, could you please introduce uh, what you do, who you are, and uh, what is the interline? Absolutely, yeah. Um, so first up, thank you for having me. Um, I'm. You've already you mentioned my name. You mentioned my uh, my role. The Interline is, um, we're a technology publication for fashion. We try to be the technology publication for fashion. Um, and that's a little different from being a fashion publication that talks about technology. Sometimes we're 100% focused on technology 100% of the time because we believe that the future of fashion is going to be defined by, uh, technology. Um, I've been a, I've been a technology researcher, writer, analyst, uh, speaker for fashion for about 13 years. The Interline's been running for, um, for, for three years and we're involved in helping to steer the whole technology conversation for fashion everywhere from initial design and creativity through supply chain and sourcing right the way to sort of downstream retail and digital fashion. Uh, we're also partners with, uh, with Premier Vision in Paris for, mm -hmm. uh, for the upcoming July event. So you, you might have seen me on stage. If you've been to a previous PV event, you might have mm -hmm. seen me on stage in February and you'll probably see me on stage in July as well. Fantastic. Um, what brings you to, to technology? Well, my background is actually more in consumer technology and writing than it is in fashion. So. I'm one of those people who kind of came to fashion afterwards rather than having formal fashion training. Okay. However, after being in the fashion industry for about 13 years, as I said, you, you, you become very immersed in it as you go. Um, and the more I've learned about fashion as I've gone, the more I see it as one of the most fascinating industries there is. Um, it's, it's the, core essence of self-expression and creativity. And there's so much that's exciting about it, but it's also an industry that's kind of stuck in a lot of ways of, in terms of how it works. Um, and in terms of, uh, sort of tradition, some traditions are good, some traditions less so. Um, and it's an industry that's got a lot to gain by working smarter, you know, tackling some big challenges and seizing some new opportunities, And technology for me is the key to unlocking all of that. Fantastic. Um, let's talk about smart tech. Uh, well, by the way, what is the difference between smart tech, smart fashion? What, what's, uh, I think you, you want to use the, the term uh, smart tech, right? 
I think we'll use the term smart tech, yeah, because that's that's the one that you're going to see at uh, Premier Vision, um, because the way it's the way it's framed at that event is there's the umbrella of smart creation, which includes a lot of the kind of material mm. innovations and process innovations, and then underneath that you have smart tech, which is the software and uh, the hardware side of things. Okay, so uh, my very first question is. Um Why? Uh, can you explain why we are hearing so much about technology in fashion right now? Sure, it's a good question. Um, some of it's down to the same disruption that every industry has faced, right? You know, we've had, there's no point in pretending we haven't had a pandemic, a cost of living crisis, supply chain fragility and risk. All of that is a big driver for you know, brands, designers, retailers, suppliers needing to think differently about how they work. Um, and differently often means digitally. Some of it is about the importance of tech in our personal lives as well, right? So I'm, I'm old enough to have lived through the start of the internet and smartphones and Now I'm here for the generative AI boom as well. Mm. Those tech cycles on a global level, they're all getting more compressed. So the way we live our regular lives as well as our professional lives is being constantly recolored by tech. Mm. And some of it is what I hinted at before, because fashion is a bit of a conflicted industry. Fashion's digitally advanced in a lot of ways especially in how it presents to consumers, you know, digital engagement, digital marketing. But behind the scenes, there's a lot that the fashion industry hasn't really figured out yet that other industries have with the help of technology. So it could be design and product definitions or how to do accurate forecasting and planning or the hmm. right way to really manage multinational supply chains with transparency and fair wages. Those are all really big things. And they're all coinciding at the moment. So I think mm. that's why we hear so much about tech and fashion yeah. today. And can you give us some example of um, why should brands and individuals, professionals in the fashion industry should consider investing in tech? Yeah, I mean, I'm slightly biased here, obviously, because of my job. Um, but I think it's a pretty straightforward answer. Um, I don't think the fashion industry can do what it wants to do or what it needs to do or get where it needs to go without technology. If you think of any big industry topic right now, you know, 3D, sustainability, profitability, category expansion, internationalization, transparency. And if you trace any of those kind of visions and ideas back to where the industry really stands today versus where it wants to go, there's a really big gap between where fashion is at and the ambitions that it has for the mm. pretty near-term future. And the that gap between those two states, I don't think that's going to be overcome using traditional tools. I don't mm. I just I just don't see it. Uh so from the point of view of a brand, the point of view of an individual fashion professional, the more you the more attention, time, uh money you invest in understanding technology, the better you'll be able to get from here to there, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, let's dig into 
every part of uh, what technology is changing uh, in the fashion industry. Um, I would like to understand how technology is transforming the design process in fashion and, and what are the benefits of digitaliz digitalizing sorry, the, the design. Um, what does technology look like here for creatives? Sure. Um, so I think there's, a, there's one thing to call out when you think about the way that design is being digitized, digitalized, whichever term you want to use. And that's that it's not really a new idea. Um, it's, you've been able to, and it's been a good idea to design fashion digitally for a long time, for decades, really. And one level that means switching from designing on paper to designing in Adobe Illustrator. Like yeah. as a, as a very simple example, that's, mm. that's a journey the industry has already been on and has already finished. There are very few companies now that still design by hand on paper. Some do in luxury, but the majority, they design digitally. It's just digitally in 2D. Mm. What's happening now is that the same process is occurring for designing in 3D. Um, so actually bringing ideas to life, making key creative and commercial decisions based on a 3D representation of a garment that was created in 3D to begin with. And what the technology looks like there is it's a whole ecosystem of stuff from digital material platforms and um, things like that through to the core tools that let people simulate 2D patterns in 3D to work with the 3D window on one side and an associated 2D pattern on the other. Those have become better than ever. The, the, the simulation is better. The visual results you get are better. It's much easier to use it from the point of view of testing ideas, simulating fit, all these other kinds of things. And they're all more accessible and affordable than they've ever been as well. So from the creative's point of view, it's now much easier to go from 2D design to 3D design and start to get into the benefits of being able to experiment, right? Shorten the distance between an idea and bringing that idea to life. You know, if there's, if you do that in 2D, there's still a gap before you can start to really show it to people. Hmm. If you do it in 3D, you get much closer to the, the original design intent than you would do otherwise. And you also start to share it then with people from the point of view of line review, fit, technical engineering and development, all these are the kinds of things. It, when you create in 3D to begin with, when you design in 3D to begin with, you get a 3D asset that allows not just the creatives, but the people who pick up the creative work afterwards and commercialize mm. it and bring it to market. It allows them to make a bunch of different choices based on a digital representation of a product instead of needing to make countless physical samples and prototypes and everything else. Mm. And what is the um, uh, entry bar barrier for for designer to, to have access to that kind of uh, tools? And what are the tools actually uh, that are on the market right now? Sure. I mean, there's there's a lot, is there? I mean, if you think okay. about the whole digital product creation ecosystem, there's a lot. If we, if we confine ourselves to just core 3D design and simulation, if what you want to do as a creative designer is you want to learn a new skill set, that allows you to bring your ideas to life in a new way. You're essentially mm -hmm. looking at um, Clo, Clo 3D, Clo Virtual Fashion, however it's positioned, browse where, 
OptiText, Style 3D, Z Emotion. Um, I'm sure I've missed a couple. Um, that's not an exclusive list. Those are the primary ones. So if you're interested in that area, those are the, that's a jumping yeah. off point. Is this expensive? It's well, it's actually more accessible than it's ever been. I won't pretend to know the prices for all of those things. I will yeah. say though that most of them are based on subscriptions and individual user licenses. Mm. And I will also say that um, I think the majority of them have kind of grassroots programs. You, what you will find in fashion now is a lot of kind of individual designers, individual creators, whether they work outside the fashion ecosystem or whether they already work for a brand, they're self-taught. They've picked up these 3D tools in their spare time um, mm. because most of them have those kind of grassroots communities. Lots of them have ed- education pricing. Some have free trials and things mm. like that. Like it is, if you're going to build those sort of 3D skills, the barrier to entry now is lower than it's ever been. Fantastic. I want to, to dig into it now. Um, <laughs> well, another area is, uh, is transparency, sustainability that is very hot, uh, right now. Well, it's, it has been hot for a few years now, but, mm. uh, how, how does the technology is gonna, is, is gonna, is gonna improve transparency and sustainability in, uh, in the fashion industry? Yeah. Um, this one again is a, there's a lot of different examples of individual technologies that contribute to it, but all of them have one thing in common, which is data, right? So the, when you think about disclosure, when you think about what you as a brand have to be able to say and prove, the only real currency that matters for making that disclosure is what data you have. Um, whether you're talking to a regulator in France or in the EU or the UK or the US, whether you're talking to a consumer, they don't want vague promises. They, they don't want um, a rough idea that you as a brand are doing something sustainable. The only thing that counts from a transparency point of view is what you can prove. Um, and right now, fashion as a whole can't prove that much. You know, the state of the average fashion supply chain thinking from a visibility point of view across all the different tiers from first tier manufacturing through mills and raw material sourcing and logistics and distribution. It's all pretty murky. Um, and the biggest companies at the moment are engaged in a process of unpicking that. That's the big kind of transparency question. The transparency challenge right now is I, as a brand or a retailer, I don't know what my supply chain is really made up of and what it really looks like. And I need to figure that out. And the industry has to really use technologies and solutions that create data to get that clarity and that visibility. That could be PLM, ERP, supply chain management and mapping. It could be connected production hardware. There's a bunch of other ways to start getting data aggregating data and using that data to say, here's what my supply chain really looks like. So I can start to prove my sustainability commitments. I can start to provide more transparency. And that's without thinking about, that's just thinking about offshore production. Hmm. If you then think about distributed, localized, um, nearshore and onshore production, you know, taking the same idea and applying it to 
localized micro factories that use digital printing and 3D printing, and they can act as distribution hubs. All of a sudden, you've got a couple of different ways to see more about how you operate internationally and also start to control more about how you produce, where you produce, and how you reach your consumers. And when you get all of that, you end up with genuine transparency, which translates into being able to genuinely demonstrate sustainability. The, um, when it comes to, to transparency and, and sustainability, um, I mean, there is a, a big part uh, coming from the regulation, right? Yeah, a big part of it is being driven by external regulation. Um, the fashion industry has not self-regulated. Uh, individual, don't get me wrong, individual brands have done a good job of setting values, sticking to values, hmm. building transparency. At a whole industry level, fashion has not been, it, it has been left to its own devices. Being left to its own devices has not translated into Um, genuine transparency. So you now have those external regulations which are setting mandates for the kinds of visibility and the kinds of transparency that brands need to provide. Um, it's not voluntary. It's coming from outside. It is being requested and forced. Um, and because of that, where you, where you once had sustainability as a marketing tool, where you as a brand could once have said, I'm doing my best to pay my workers a fair wage. I'm doing my best to use regenerative cotton. I'm doing my best to uh, eliminate material waste and improve material yields, all those kind of different things. Um, regulators won't settle for, you know, your best. It's, it's a case of what can you prove? What can you demonstrate? I think that's driving it a lot. I think consumer expectations are evolving with it. And I think the brands that are ahead are the ones that are looking beyond the regulations. And they're saying, I know what I need to comply with now, but beyond that, what else can I build to differentiate myself from the industry to start to really make a real difference in my environmental mm. impact or my humanitarian um, impact? Um, what, what brand is, um, is, is the, the best when it comes to, to this topic? There's a, there's a lot of different definitions of best. <laughs> I, I hes I'd hesitate to point to uh, to one person. I'll, I'll give you a good example, and it's somebody that I was on a podcast with, which was the um, I forget his exact title, so I apologize. But he works on the materials and transparency team for Icebreaker, which if you've ever come across them, they make um, outdoor performance wear from mm -hmm. merino wool. That's a really interesting case study because they have an ideal supply chain to build transparency into. Like if you, if you make clothes from one material, basically like 90%, 95% of one material, which is Merino wool. And you can only really get that from a few places, a few farms in one region. You have a perfect case study for genuine transparency and traceability because you can look back to not only where in the world did this wool come from, but what farm, what time, what sheep, uh, all these kinds of things that allow you to do some pretty radical disclosures. You can, you can trace all of that down to the consumer. 
you can disclose a huge amount of data to regulators. That's it's a it's quite a simple supply chain compared to a lot of people because it just it is heavily so heavily focused on one material. But it's a good example, I think, of the kind of the level of transparency that the future is going to demand. Mm. Yeah, in in what way can technology revolutionize um, product journey? Actually, um, do, do you have any any uh, concrete example? Um, yeah, I so I, I mean th that's a good follow on from the previous question, Adrian, mm. because we're we've talked about data already. We've said data is the the, the primary currency for transparency. When you're talking about the product journey, the the outcome of the product journey, especially in France, where I know you're speaking from, is a digital product passport. It is a piece of um, uh, physical and digital uh, identity that corresponds to the journey that a product has been on. So it corresponds to what is it made from, where was it made, um, who made it, what are the different kind of countries it's traveled through, what is its carbon footprint, um, all of those kinds of things. It's, it, it is the full identity of the product and the journey it's followed. Um, for the most part, compliance with those kind of digital product passports is already a very difficult thing for a lot of brands to do because we've talked about the fact that supply chain visibility is low. So mm. ha disclosing that information is problematic because it's not information that you have in the first place. When we think about making concrete progress towards being able to do that, towards having digital product passports that you as a brand or a retailer can stand by and say, this is 100% accurate, there it's a case of architecting that visibility in from the start because a product passport is not just it can't just be a summary of a product journey that you tried to figure out afterwards if you get to the stage of having a finished product and you put a label on it and at that point you try to figure out where it came from and you try to figure out what it's made from and who the supplier was and where the raw material was if let's say it was cotton was it blended was where was it where was it gin where was it carded all this kind of stuff you can't do it you you cannot do it post hoc so what you have to do is start to design with the whole product journey in mind so you have to begin by saying I know what I'm going to be asked at the end of this, and I need to start collecting that information as I go. Um, so that means starting to measure some things that you probably don't measure right now. It means starting mm. to measure things like the water consumption or the energy consumption of your dyeing process. It means starting to measure things like what share of your Shipping and logistics is done by air freight versus ocean freight. Um, measuring things like, um, uh, like I just said, the journey of individual cotton bales and uh, and things like that. Um, that's where technology really comes in because it's not just a case of technology as a software platform that allows you to look at this stuff afterwards. Technology is also the tools that you use to gather and measure that stuff in the first place. It's the it's the interventions you use uh, to quantify that energy usage, that water usage. It's the pigments and bale identifiers and things that you use to track 
where the cotton originated, the journey that it went on afterwards. Um, it's, it's all of that bundled together. And that for me is really the main thing when we think about revolutionizing product journeys is not how do we think about it afterwards and tick the boxes for the label. It's about how do we design for it in the first place? What do we need to measure and prove before we can start to manage it? Hmm. Thank you very much. Um, What do you think are the biggest challenges um, when it comes to ad adoption of smart tech, uh, especially when you are a small brand and you don't have, especially uh, the, the, the means to uh, to invest in, in in that kind of technology? Yeah, I think that is a very fair place to start because um, I mentioned earlier, cost is less of a barrier than it has been, but it's still there. You know, mm. it's not very few solutions are free. And if they are free, it's for a limited period and in a pilot program or what have you. Um, so that's, that's definitely a barrier. Um, it's less of a barrier than it was because of the shift away from big enterprise software deals that are made, um, where people have to spend hundreds of thousands or millions of capital um, expenditure to buy a solution, buy a load of licenses for it, pay maintenance, pay consultants for implementations, you know, moving away from that to more self-serve, sign-on, cloud-based, subscription-based solutions. That's, that's helping, but the cost is still there. And especially at the moment when you think about the fact that a lot of brands, especially on the smaller end, um, They're having their margins squeezed in a pretty big way by cost of goods sold and consumer-facing pricing. That makes it really difficult to justify investment. Um, if you can start to look beyond the investment at the return, you probably find that there are a bunch of technologies that will give you money back hopefully above and beyond what you spend in within within a few years. But cost is there. Cost is a barrier. I think The issue as well is that digital skills are not widely taught. So um, we've, we've said, I don't, I don't have a fashion education. I work with a lot of people who do, and I talk to a lot of people who do, even people who are coming out of universities right now. Um, and a lot of them are coming out without learning any of the things we just talked about. They'll, they'll come away understanding that sustainability is important. Digital design is important. They probably won't come out with 3D skills. They probably won't come out with an understanding of how to map supply chain risk. That means that when people get into industry or people who've been in industry for a long time get asked to make these sorts of changes, there's a very steep learning curve to doing it. Um, so that's something to overcome. I think it's also the big challenge for the technology industry in fashion is to move away from the idea that If you implement technology, that means more admin work for your users. Um, and that's, that's been, that's mm. not unfair. That's been true in the past. So when we think about, we talked about the transition to Adobe Illustrator earlier. When you start to think about the journey, some designers have been on bringing their Illustrator styles into PLM or into other solutions. Um, and for a while, that was an extra admin burden. So I understand where that idea comes from. It's less the case now because different solutions link in and integrate better with one another, but people still believe it. And I understand why they believe it. And that idea that technology means more work hmm. 
that's something that the industry needs to move beyond. It, I don't believe it's true anymore, but I know why people feel it. And then I think the last one is the scale of the cultural change because buying software sounds really easy and it is really easy if it's cheap and subscription-based and self-serve and self-deploy. That doesn't mean that it automatically changes the way your brand, your organization works to allow you to really make use of that software. We've all got experience in our personal lives, professional lives of thinking that a piece of software seems really cool, using it, finding out that nobody else wants to use it or we're not using it right. And then it tapers off and it doesn't end up making the change that you wanted it to do. So technology adoption from the point of view of buying new software is just part of it. There really is like a whole cultural evolution that has to take place. That's that's why people talk about digital transformation rather than just tech adoption, because it acknowledges the fact that you have to change the way you work to go with the new tools. Hmm. Um, in your opinion, how will the integration of artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, will impact the fashion industry in the in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, AI is a really difficult area to hmm. talk about in any industry at the moment. Um, I think there's some there's some justified concern about AI replacing jobs. Um, I think that's going to end up being true in some cases, but not others. Um, what cases? What cases? I think <laughs> I think it's, I think it's going to become true in. Um, Unfortunately, I, I suspect modeling, as in um, not 3D modeling, but rather the act of people wearing clothes for, for photo shoots and things. I will be very surprised if that isn't heavily impacted by generative uh, generative images in the future, in the very yeah. near future. When you, I, when you talk about, uh, you are talking about uh, pack shot, uh, uh, e-commerce, uh, pictures, etc. That kind et of thing, yeah. Not I, yeah of, not, obviously not, not a no, not not a full runway show or anything like that. But like, if you if you're if you're in the business of selling jeans, let's say, um, mm. and you have a lot of very similar styles, a lot of evergreen styles that come in lots of different sizes, lots of different washes, um, is it easier? And and you also have kind of um, very tight trend windows and complicated supply chains. Is it easier for you as a brand to? have a virtual model who's just generated by AI to wear those for your product photography, or is it easier to book photo shoots, ship all of those things around the world, make sure you've got coverage of every color and every finish and every wash that you need. I go for it's, the first one. <laughs> you, you would. Yeah, you would. And unfortunately that's, that's from a commercial point of view, right? If you just put your, if you mm. put your, your cold commercial hat on, that makes sense. If you put yourself in the, from the point of view of somebody who has worked to become a model, a catalog mm -hmm. model, um, that's not such a good thing, uh, especially for a modeling industry that has it's really struggled with diversity and inclusivity until recently. Um, mm -hmm. So you now have a lot of people who feel they haven't been fairly represented in the modeling industry before who now get the chance just as it gets upended by generative images. That's, that's a, that's a really hard pill to swallow. Um, so there's, there's that side of things. I think as well, there's, there's mapping supply chains and there's the kind of data gathering and data analysis that we've talked about. That is 
when you think about the volume of data that would exist across a massive multinational supply chain that covers so many different product categories, it's already very hard for a human being to deal with, even with the help of systems and technology. AI is very, very good at identifying patterns and surfacing insights in a way that people are not naturally as good at. Um, so if you want real risk analysis and transparency, and you want a real objective picture of what your supply chain looks like, AI is possibly going to do a better job of it than people will. Um, the thing you have to think about, though, is it's also a legal and ethical minefield. We talked about the ethical side of it with modeling and replacing jobs. The legal and copyright side of it is completely unresolved and incredibly complicated. If I if I want to use Midjourney or Dali or whatever to give me some design inspiration as a creative designer, uh, mm. which 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 people do and they are free to do. If I want to do that at the moment, I have no way of knowing whether the inspiration I'm given was trained on somebody else's copyrighted material or not. It probably was. Um, and that means it's very, very hard to unpick copyright infringement. Um, and that's there are a bunch of cases working their way through the courts and things around that at the moment. But I think to get around that, the future is going to be instead of using off the shelf models like Midjourney, uh, designers who want inspiration will turn to large language models, generative models that have been trained just on their brand. You know, mm. their, their forks of chat GPT or Midjourney that are only trained on their brand heritage and their, their properties and their identity and they can serve as a design assistant and they can uh, start to serve up those kinds of ideas without the risk of the, the copyright infringement. There's there's a huge amount that AI can do. There's a huge amount of disruption it could bring. It might, it might not. I think either way, it's it's definitely a significant shift in the nature of work in, mm. in fashion and everywhere else. Yeah. And you personally, uh, or do you use a... Uh... Do you use AI on a daily basis? Uh, not on a daily basis. We use it occasionally. So we, uh, at the Interline, we've used generative AI images a few times. Um, we always disclose where we use them, uh, but we do use them because we're a small organization and we have a certain amount of in-house time and artwork and things that we can produce. And generative images are useful for that purpose. Um, incorporating those into designs and layouts and things that we produce is It is a net benefit for us and it is useful, but we make sure it's always disclosed because of the copyright uh, situations that we've spoken about. As somebody who writes, hmm. I, I feel conflicted about AI for writing. Um, hmm. it's, I, I don't think I've ever published a single line that was written by AI without being rewritten by a human being. Um, I, in my, maybe I'm, biased and maybe I just can't see that AI is ready to replace me. Um, but generally speaking, like the, the, the written output of even the latest, even GPT-4, the written output of that is behind what a good human writer can do for the time being. I have used it though to help sort of break out of writer's block, to help with structures, Hmm. Uh, to help, it's especially useful for helping to summarize big reports and yes. things like that. As long as, as long as you validate it 
with a human being afterwards. Um, and I think the really interesting part is what it's going to mean for the future of product discovery now that it's being more integrated into search. So if you saw the Google IO presentation uh, earlier this week, you know, it's very clear that AI is becoming the future of search, which means mm. it's also becoming the future of product discovery for fashion. Um, when, you know, somebody who arrives at your brand through Google, what does the future look like for them to find your products when your products are being recommended or not by a large language model? It's a very different world. If you ask, if you ask ChatGPT to give you product recommendations, who knows how far you can rely on those? Who knows how accurate those things are at the moment? Uh, and I think that's an example of what we just talked about having brand specific models. Cause you've seen, um, one of the luxury groups trialing chat GPT fueled, uh, chatbots, which are trained just on their products. They're not hmm. that useful. They're not that interesting, but they also don't go off model and recommend anyone else's products or recommend anything that doesn't exist. Um, and that's going to be a weird challenge to overcome in the near future for product discovery. Wow. Um, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's both exciting and frightening at the same time. Um, that's a good, that's a good summary of AI in general. <laughs> Do, do do you cover um do you cover um uh the uh, uh, sorry the, um, the acquisition part of uh, i mean how does ai is gonna is gonna change the acquisition uh, uh, part of of a business um on on the interline <laughs> In the sense of acquisition, in the sense of like business, yeah, e-commerce, yeah, mm, exactly. Uh, oh, e e the e-commerce side of things. Um, yeah. So yeah, we've 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 have covered that a little bit um, in terms of what it means for people buying products, what it means mm -hmm. for people finding those kinds of things. Um, and at the moment, most of the experiments are quite narrow, um, and I'm I'm more interested to see what happens with when google becomes ai first google the search product uh, like that that to me is the is the more interesting part of what's the timeline for that what uh, it's pretty well it was showcased the other day um it's currently in their labs model i think you know this year for sure um wow. probably in the first half of this year you will start to see ai becoming the first AI recommendations and AI input becoming the first thing you see when you do a search on google um and what that means for brands that have optimized their sites and their product assortments and things for discovery through traditional web search. I don't, nobody really knows. Um, I'm sure and I'm hopeful that Google are working with big brands to make sure that their model is properly trained and is able to recommend, I don't know, a pair of sneakers or a pair of jeans or whatever without making something up or without, um, but, but which, which brands does it prefer? Hmm. The, you know, it's there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot to unpick. I mean, brands are gonna have to pay change. anyway. <laughs> you would imagine so, yeah. But I mean, it's you know, you've had you've had brands that have done this with 3D, right? 3D product discovery through Google has been a thing for a while. You don't hmm. see it that often as a consumer, but it does exist. Um, and that's that's a partnership between Google and the the brand. I imagine the same model is going to apply for their AI as well. 
Yeah. Let's talk about the, the consumer consumer experience uh, when, mm-hmm. when it comes to smart tech. Yeah. How can the fashion uh, brands and retailers collaborate with tech companies to create a seamless and enhanced consumer experience for smart tech? Sure. So I think when you think about retail, you think about kind of how brands sell and engage, sell to and engage with consumers. Um, there was a period a few years ago where everybody talked about omnichannel. That was kind of the operating word was uh, omnichannel, which which basically means for the consumer, there is effectively one channel. It doesn't matter whether you are interacting with a brand through their e-commerce, through Instagram, uh, although Instagram shopping has been dialed back, but uh, through social media, through a physical store, through um, returns, or even a wholesale partner, the consumer should expect to have a consistent interaction with the brand. Um, and that word has kind of gone away. People don't like to say omnichannel very much anymore because it's it, it got a bit boring. And um, But the reality is that that is very much what people expect. Um, and that's also become much more the case during the pandemic and afterwards as well. Um, I, I, don't get me wrong. Physical stores are firmly back. People are going shopping again. Um, e-commerce did get a big bump, but it's, you know, it's not the case that e-commerce is the only game in town. What is the case is that if I buy something online, I expect to be able to return it to the store um, with no questions asked about. You can ask me why I'm returning it, but you couldn't say to me as a consumer, or you shouldn't say to me as a consumer, or you bought that online, so you can't return it here. Um, and th- that's just the pure transactional side of things. Mm. The same idea applies when you think about having any interaction or any engagement with the brand or retail lifestyle, because you've had a very kind of fixed set of channels for exposing a brand lifestyle to a consumer for quite a long time. You've had digital advertising, out-of-home advertising, print advertising, and the stores themselves. Um, Now you have different channels in terms of not just social, but digital kind of multimedia partnerships. So you'll you'll have seen brands partner with um, video game properties like Roblox and Fortnite. Um, you will have seen people start to do a lot more in kind of live streaming and those that side of things, live engagement. Essentially, there are a lot of ways to keep reaching consumers, whether they're existing ones or um, or new ones. And you also have what what's called um, like product commerce or p-commerce, which is where something that somebody buys keeps in their wardrobe and uses becomes a channel of engagement because it's embedded with an NFC tag or something that allows you to um, engage with the consumer post-sale to say, hey, you've had this for a while. Do you want to buy something to go with it? Or, hey, we've just introduced this new category. Let me send you a notification. Um, All of those are, again, touch points where you want a consistent experience with the brand. They all need to feel like part of the same whole. Um, And I think that's a good, I think you said seamless and enhanced, and that's a good way to think about it, is all of these different routes of transaction and engagement, they all lead back to the same place. And what that means for the consumer, as we said, is a consistent experience. What it means for the brand or the retailer is that 
you get a whole new level of insight and data and visibility on who your audience is, um, provided you do it within the right privacy restrictions and everything else, um, you can start to really know your consumer in a way that you couldn't with those previous channels, um, starting to mix all of this together. And that allows you to be smart about making recommendations, whether it's a human or an AI making those recommendations. It allows you to be smart about your assortment planning, it allows you to bring all of that intelligence back into making sure that you're bringing to market the things that people want and that you're showcasing them across the channels that people want to see them. And that when they buy them, they have the opportunity to do what they want with them, return them when they want. And also takes you into the secondary market where you start to say, not just post-sale for one consumer, but how do I continue to engage with consumers mm-hmm if they're the second buyer of a piece mm. of clothing, um, whether it's through my own secondary market or through one of the third parties. Um, there's a lot of different ways in to the same brand experience now. And um, again, I hate to sound like a broken record, but it all comes back to data and connectivity at the end of the day, being like being able to deliver that experience and being able to act on the information you get as a brand or a retailer. Mm. It comes down to data. But it sounds like this is a uh, this kind of um, of uh, level of uh, of digitalization of uh, of uh, of a distribution is accessible only for the big brands. No, can you have access to that when you're a small brand? Well, I think maybe less at the kind of big systems level. So, if, as a small brand, you're probably not going to spend a lot of money, a huge amount of money on very complex multi-channel CRM systems and things like that. You might, depending on uh, on who you are, but you're less likely to have that than a big brand is. What you will get is the same democratization of selling that everyone else can get through Shopify and other similar channels. Um, and that's not just, as I understand it, Shopify is not just about who can you sell to um, and where can you be and making it seamless for people to put in their credit card details and buy something. It's also about knowing the consumer there as well. Uh, That gives you a level of visibility for smaller brands and kind of emerging and individual designers. Is it the same detailed level of granular audience information that a massive brand has? No, just because there's fewer touch points and fewer systems behind it. But the idea is the same. I think it's just not as deep. Hmm, of course. Um, how do you see the future of smart of smart tech, and what trends do you expect to emerge in the next uh, five to ten years? Um, I think we've already talked about AI. I think you're going to see AI snowball quickly in the yeah. lines that we've already discussed. Um, so I'll touch on two other things. One is degrowth. Um, To me, I feel like that's something that fashion is going to have to absolutely deal with within the next decade, Which, by which I mean there's only so much you can do to change the environmental impact of making and selling lots of clothes. Eventually, to really cut your environmental and humanitarian impact, you have to make fewer clothes, Um, clothes, footwear, whatever it might be. That's a very, very difficult thing to deal with for an industry that thrives on upward momentum and um, 
velocity and variety. Most of the big fast fashion organizations are the size they are because they can demonstrate continued growth. Um, but continued growth is not sustainable for the planet and it's not really sustainable as a business model either. So within the next decade, you will definitely see businesses that really start to reckon with the idea that it's not about how many items you can shift. It's about how profitable, durable, the quality, it's about how good each individual item is. That's going to be a really big force for me in the next 10 years. And the other thing is digital assets. So um, we talked about 3D design earlier. Um, we've talked a little bit about kind of multi-channel, multi-channel partnerships, video game crossovers, those kinds of things. It, there's so much when you think about metaverse, NFTs, all these kind of possibility spaces. Um, all of these things are, they either rely on you having 3D digital versions of your products or they um, they are supercharged if you have 3D or digital versions of your products. So if you as a brand think forwards to what you want to do in the next five to 10 years, and then you map backwards from that to what you're going to need in order to execute on it, I think in almost every case, you will find that having a digital representation of your products, a 3D model of your garments, your shoes, whatever, will be a net benefit. So I think there's going to be a big focus on how you make those assets at scale um, and how you make that work and how you then make them have extra value as you go. Hmm. <coughs> Sorry. The, um, I, I would like to come back on degrowth. Uh, mm -hmm. I think this is quite interesting. Um, do, do you see any... Have you seen? Have you come across any uh, any brands, any model that uh, that is uh, that, that is working well when it comes to the growth and uh, still profitable and uh, exciting for for um, how do you say it, actionnaire uh, for uh, to, to, yeah to kind of put that into practice yeah um, yeah no I think I think there's a couple um, of examples the the obvious and the easy one is Patagonia um, everybody likes to point to Patagonia because they're a very virtuous organization that do a lot of things right they have always really adopted the philosophy that you buy something high quality and it lasts and you get it repaired and the the value is in how long you use it. Um, that is, it's a very interesting way of dealing with the consumer because a lot of brands, especially, <laughs> excuse me, especially in fast fashion are about consumer acquisition. They're mm -hmm. about how many people can I get into my brand universe so I can start to sell to them. Patagonia and companies like it are about consumer lifetime value. Um, so they're about what is somebody worth to me over the lifetime of our engagement. And the lifetime of your engagement is buying stuff, having it last, having it repaired, um, getting great service, getting great quality. In the long run, there is, there's a bit of maths to do to figure out, is that a more profitable model than selling lots of stuff to lots of people. Um, can you make it a more profitable model than selling lots of stuff to lots of people? Um, Patagonia is a big business, gives a lot of money away. Um, so it must work from some angle there, but it does rely on, from the brand's perspective, you have to make the most profit you possibly can at every one of those junctures. You know, your, your margins have to be higher 
than they would be if you moved a lot of product. Because when you move a lot of product, you can um, amortize um, costs and things much more easily. You can spread spread out risk. You can't do that when you're selling smaller volumes of stuff. The other example, there's a, there's a brand that I did an interview with a couple of years ago called um, uh, Lestrange. They're based in London. Um, and they've got an interesting philosophy around having um, kind of a modular wardrobe where they sell pieces that are designed to be worn in multiple scenarios. They've talked explicitly about degrowth. They've they've explicitly said the, the goal is not to sell lots of things to people. The goal is to sell one thing that has a lot of use cases. Behind the scenes, are they about making money? Absolutely. Um, but I think it is a viable business model. The hard part is if you're a brand right now, that only works because you sell a lot of stuff to a lot of people, it's a very hard change to make. If you're already kind of a brand that makes high quality, sustainable, durable stuff, it's easier to get there. Um, And you don't have to degrow anywhere near as much as somebody who does, who is just shifting huge volumes of products. If If you're Shein, for example, you know, thousands and thousands of new products every day, degrowth doesn't work with that business model. And, at some point, there is the realization that that maybe is a business model that shouldn't continue. Very interesting. Thank you very much. And um, can you give us some advice for aspiring fashion professional looking to specialize in uh, in smart tech and stay ahead of the game uh, in this in this crazy industry that is evolving so quickly? Yeah, sure thing. So um, take advantage of every educational opportunity you can. Every chance you've got to learn about this stuff, take it. Um, read the interline. It's free. So uh, <laughs> we, do, we don't have subscription. Always, you know, I'll do that shameless plug. Um, check out our stuff. Um, come to Premier Vision. Uh, in, uh, in in July, we're going to be hosting some tech, smart tech discussions that are focused on all of these areas um, live. They were really successful in February, and I'd love to see some more of your listeners come back for that in uh, in July as well. Um, we talked about if you're interested in designing in 3D, explore some of those grassroots education, free trial programs, start to get to grips with things. Um, if you work in a big organization, you do work for a brand. Um, my recommendation would be don't be afraid to kind of come up with a vision for what technology can do and take it up the corporate ladder. Um, because in the past, technology projects came about because top executives wanted something to change and they bought technology to make it change and they pushed that down on everybody. Nowadays, a lot of technology projects start from um, process champions, heads of department, people who are people who are passionate about making things different in design, in sourcing, in sustainability, in retail. If you're in one of those departments and you can see how technology could do something better for you, talk to the people who hold the budget. Talk to and, and just say, look, I I know this can make a difference. I know this can make a change um, because you will often find that people are a lot more receptive to this than they used to be now. People really buy into the idea that, like I said at the beginning, I don't think there's a future where fashion does everything it wants to do and gets to everywhere it wants to get to without the help of technology. Fantastic. Very, very inspiring. Um, Last question. I mean, the the, the last part of this interview, a quick rapid fire question. Um, 
part. Uh, let's go. What do you want to close the door to in our industry? Oh, overproduction. Um, it's the fact that fashion makes way too much stuff. It's, it's the result of a fundamentally faulty business model. And it's also, it's at the root of a huge amount of human and environmental harm. If one thing has to go in fashion, it's that. Overproduction, yeah. It's very linked to, uh, to one of our questions before. Where do you look mm -hmm. to get inspired? Uh, in whatever industry or do you stay ahead of the game? Uh, so I look at the video game industry. Um, it's, some of that is personal. I grew up playing video games. I'm that sort of age. Um, but I think the video game industry is really, really good at influencing culture. And it's really good at creating new models and engaging with people, bringing people together, uh, figuring out how people want to interact in virtual worlds. Um, and if you're a brand that wants to think about, you know, having digital fashion in some way, I would be very much looking towards what's happening in video games at the moment. All right. Uh, what is the last piece of clothes you bought? Uh, I bought a pair of jeans from Levi's. Um, uh, so I try not to buy too much mass market fashion, but um, they, I'm a weird shape and they have very granular fit scale. So uh, that, that, that got me through the door and the promise of repair kind of helped as well. Hmm. And who is the personality you would like to listen to in this podcast? If you had all of the budget in the world and uh, impact in the world out here, and I would say Rick Owens, uh, just because I'm a fan, but uh, being a bit more realistic, um, Mikhail, I'm going to pronounce it, I'm going to massacre his name, but Mikhail Barilaro, who is Gucci's head of Metaverse Ventures, I'd be really intrigued to see what he would have to say at the moment. Hmm. What kind of question would you ask him? I'd want to know what the future of that side of things looks like for a brand or a house like Gucci, because you have a company that has been very, very far ahead in digital engagement and digital marketing for a very long time. It's been a hmm. case study for what did good digital marketing looks like. I'd want to know how successful adapting that strategy to real-time digital has been. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Ben. It was a pleasure to have you. And, uh, and that was um, I have one of my favorite episodes so far. Thank you so much. Oh, good. Well, I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you very much for having me on. And um, I hope to see a bunch of your listeners at uh, Premier Vision in Paris in July. Sure. See you. Bye-bye. See you soon. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast till the end. If you want to support this initiative, subscribe on whatever podcast platform you follow. Just click on the subscribe button, rate it five stars, and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to share the podcast on your favorite social media. Thank you for listening to Smart Creation, the podcast, an invitation to explore the potential of sustainable fashion. 